What's up, Rob? Not much. Uh, it's been a, it's been a nice week, and I wanted to follow up with you because, as you know, I am becoming an NFL guy, or I'm trying to. And for a while now, like as long as we've been talking about this, you've been talking about Red Zone. You've been saying you got to what? You got to get Red Zone. You get Red Zone going all day, and I was like, okay, that sounds kind of int- intriguing. I do. I'll. I would definitely do. So far, I'll tell you. I love hanging around for six, seven hours on Sunday and having snacks and watching the football. It's kind of nice. I kind of enjoy it. But on Sunday, I did try to watch Red Zone. I had Red Zone on and ready to go. Um, and I couldn't do it. I had to turn it off after about 15 minutes. I didn't really know what Red Zone was, and I just I found it way too stressful. It was way too overwhelming. I was like, I can't do this. I had to, I want to watch like a game. You know, I want to watch a game. I want to see the commentary. The Reds, the Red Zone was too much for me. It was like my brain was just being overloaded with information. And I, I couldn't handle it. My, my feeble Canadian mind was not able to comprehend Red Zone. Let me ask you something. <laughs> okay. Are you a coffee guy? I'm not, I mean, I drink coffee every day. I'm not, I don't know, I would coffee, classify though. myself as a coffee guy, but. But you, you drink coffee though, right? Yeah, of course. Sure. And you enjoy it, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you feel awake, makes you feel alert. Sometimes it's refreshing sure. in the morning or after a meal. Think back with me, if you will, <laughs> okay. to the very first time you ever tried coffee. <laughs> yeah, I'm all jittery. Ugh. Oh, it's too much. Did you like the taste? Did you like the taste though? Yeah, no, it wasn't. It's all for me, frankly, it's always been more of like a sugar and cream sort of delivery system than the something I enjoy for the taste. Okay. Well, the first time I ever had coffee, I was at lunch with my grandma and she got a coffee and I wanted to try it. So she put some on a spoon and I tried it. It was just black restaurant coffee. I presumably made in a big pot. It's terrible. It's bitter. I didn't like it. Sure. Over time, you know, I got accustomed to the taste. And now I'm at the point where I find specialty beans from unique small roasters who source them from all over the world. And I only drink my coffee black. And mm. because of these beans and in the, in the brewing process, I'm able to taste the complexities in each different bean or style <laughs> of roast. Okay. I can think of no I better see. analogy for enjoying red zone on a Sunday than that. Right. At first. Yes. Whoa. It's, it's overwhelming. There's so much going on. (laughs) My little brain can't handle it. But then as you build up a tolerance for it and appreciation for the package they've put together of seven hours of commercial free football, begin to pick up on the nuances. You begin to appreciate little things about the broadcast, things that you don't get offered in any other network 
during any other game. Rob, the selling point is there. Zero commercials. Yeah. During seven hours of football. Every single play of consequence in every single game. As it's it incredible. happens. Yeah. I I would love, I would genuinely love to be in the studio on a Sunday. Just see <laughs> see how they put it together. I would love to just see all the people in the control room, all the pe- all the editors, all the, you know, the producers working on that broadcast. I'm like genuinely fascinated with how they do that every week. I mean, as much as I found it an assault on the senses, my main takeaway was because I do just really like to watch a game and you see the game from beginning to end. You get the commentary team and all that. I think probably a really good way to do it, which is an even more assault on the senses. But if you had the a single game on the main screen and then you can have a secondary screen, you have red zone on a secondary screen. So you're getting all the plays and all the different games and all the touchdowns and highlights as they roll in. But meanwhile, you're able to sit down and take in an, an entire game from start to finish. What about that? What do you think about that idea? I don't hate that idea. <laughs> I think that's that's fine. Yeah. I just I prefer Red Zone now having watched it every Sunday for years. It's just it's so much better. I I love wow. watching Monday Night Football. I like watching Sunday Night Football and I watch Thursday. Thursday's broadcast kind of sucks, but that's more of the commentators. I I just prefer Red Zone. It's I want to jump in. I I don't want to see a bunch of standing around. I don't want to see I don't want to wait while they do the replay. I'll come back to that. And yeah. I certainly don't want to watch a bunch of truck commercials, beer commercials, pharmaceutical commercials, just a bunch of dog shit in between plays. Just get me sure. into the action, and I want to stay in just the action line, zone for seven right hours. Into my, right into my brain stem. Yeah, we're, we talked about digital fentanyl uh, with Vivek Ramaswamy calling TikTok digital fentanyl. No, yeah, it's red zone. <laughs> red zone is digital fentanyl, and I'm hooked, baby. You know what I also, I watched, the Monday night football the other day, but I watched the feed with, with Peyton and Eli Manning. It was, I, I was not into it at first, but I didn't hate it by the end. I don't know. I didn't mind. I didn't mind it as you're not into that. No. Uh, someone asked me about that last night. I can't, I, I just can't do it. It's too much talking. Yeah. I liked the banter with the Peyton or the, the Manning brothers. Uh, not that I was ever a fan of really either of them, like when they were actually playing, even despite, you know, the, the, pretty decent careers that they both managed to put together. Um, I'm still kind of circling around a favorite team. If you're curious about that, I'm leaning bills. I'm leaning towards oh, the I bills. Like, um, like I was saying, I liked, I watched the game uh, this Sunday when they played the Raiders and had a really re- nice recovery game after mm-hmm. a really disappointing opener against the jets when they couldn't uh, seal the deal on, on that on a shell-shocked uh, Jets team. Josh Allen had a really good game, was in way better form. Uh, I like, you know, it's Buffalo. It's kind of a working-class town. A lot of Canadians seem to gravitate toward the Bills for whatever reason, I guess for proximity reasons. Um, I like, too, that they're good, but they're not this perpetual dynasty. It's not like jumping into a sport and you just gravitate towards, like, the Cowboys or the Lakers or whatever Mm -hmm. like the main dynasty team you can think of they're a good team but they also have a history of extreme disappointment and uh and uh arduous you know and difficult times and painful times for the fan base so i think it's a good place for me to jump in i like the the branding 
I'm kind of, I'm, I'm leaning bills. I haven't totally, totally cinched it yet, but I'm, that's where I'm leaning right now. That's a good team. That's a good team to pick. I like them. I like them a lot. And like you're saying, a lot of disappointment, not a dynasty, but these past few years watching that team, it's just been so much fun. Love Stefan Diggs, love Josh Allen. Wish they could find like a really solid one, two running back combo. Like, I don't know if they're there yet. They've, just really struggled on that on that front. They really haven't had a really consistent, strong run game. But. They've got a Russo as well. Oh yeah, they do. Like his yeah. linebacker, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. It might be like an offensive tackle or something. I'm not sure. Is that it? I I know they have a yeah. I saw they have a Russo, which is yeah, I yeah, get a jersey. Just get that jersey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's that's been fun. It's been fun to uh, try and explore that a little bit. If I do get invested enough, then by the time the playoffs roll around, I can actually like care about what's happening rather than you taking on the my normal sort of dispassionate uh taking it in without really thinking too much about the consequences of it i'm looking forward to that i am looking forward to the nba season starting as well that's coming up soon you know i miss i miss sports that's how much i miss sports is that i'm jumping into the nfl and i'm jumping into you know this new big thing but uh i think i speak for both of us in saying we're both extremely excited hockey season's just around the corner I, as yeah, as you know, <laughs> I'm culturally obligated to be a huge diehard fan of this sport. I'm going to go to the very first Canadians home opener. I'm going to take my shirt off. Uh, three other guys have a <laughs> HABS kind of painting, body painting uh-huh. thing. Should be really good. Should be really good stuff. Love it. I'm looking forward to that, and I'm also looking forward to this conversation we're just about to have with the intercepts, wow. Dan Bogislaw. <laughs> um, Look at that transition. And um, we we just we just got out the phone with Dan a couple minutes ago and it was fantastic. My multi-time guest at this point, plenty to get into with the UAW strike and the kind of burgeoning working class solidarity class consciousness that we're seeing kind of like uh, start to take hold in some of these uh, these movements. It's really exciting. Dan is great to talk to about it. It was wonderful stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get into that, need to remind everyone that our premium episode from earlier this week. Only for paid interns with Liv Agar is available now. If you go to insurgentspod.com, just five bucks a month, you can get access to that premium episode and every premium episode we've ever done. You get an additional episode every week for just five bucks a month. We really, really appreciate it. You help keep this show going. And with Liv, we talked about Lauren Boebert's hot date at Beetlejuice the musical Netanyahu meeting with Elon Musk and telling him to tamp down anti-Semitism on X, the everything app, the John Fetterman body double conspiracies, the missing F 35 and so much more. Uh, Liv is such a fun guest. That was, that was really great. Yeah, it was a banger. And honestly, yeah, I would, I would encourage everyone to visit insurgentspod.com. And if you're not already a, uh, one of our beloved paid interns, Please subscribe. It really helps us uh, do the show. It's the only way that we're able to continue doing the show each and every week. Uh, you know, I'm so proud of some of the, the guests that we come on, that we have come on this this show. I think it's really fantastic. The only way you can get the full experience, if you enjoy listening to this show, is by subscribing at insurgentspod.com. So please do that. Yes, absolutely. Do you want to get to our conversation with Dan Bogislaw? Rob, I would love nothing more. I would love nothing more as well. I mean, listen, we get we have some very depressing conversations on this show over the last three years. It's it's become a common theme, um, 
at the end of every episode, we're like, oh, we just, you know, I feel bad now and I feel hopeless and miserable. It's almost like a big joke at this point, but it, it's really, really exciting seeing the the kind of labor movement in the here in the West, in America and Canada, that's been kind of like dormant uh, for many decades now, for pretty much my entire lifetime, start to wake up, start to realize the kind of power that people have when they work together, when they have solidarity with one another. This UAW strike is a great example. Dan's been doing some great coverage of it. And that's what we're going to talk about in just one moment when Dan Bogoslaw joins the show right after this. Dan Bogoslaw, we're, we're happy to have you back. Thank you for joining us. But before we get into our conversation, we have to ask you, has Ken been giving you any issues at The Intercept? Has he been causing any problems at work? Yeah, I mean, I would say the biggest sort of roadblock that we've run into is like, you know, back in the day, Ken was an extremely talented skateboarder. Um, we're talking <laughs> tray flips. We're tra- talking big spins. Yeah. Uh, we're talking, we're talking gap heel flips and he has since really like abandoned that to focus on journalism. Um, he's developed gout, uh, early onset arthritis. (laughs) And, and so we went skateboarding recently. He, he was sweating. Um, he was feeling a little shaky on the board. Um, you know, he, he decided it'd be safest to practice kick flipping on a patch of grass. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, he landed on the side of his board and threw his back mm. out for approximately 12 days. So he's actually switched to pickleball <laughs> um, from skateboarding. That's true. I that's did can, see, that's I actually did see true. tweeting about this the other day. We got to hold an intervention or something. This is outrageous. Yeah. This is terrible yeah. news. I Meanwhile, I've continued to skate. I've continued to shred. I've continued to ask senators, uh, will you legalize skating for uh, – a long piece I've been working on, which is forthcoming. Um, but yeah, I would say that's just like a big issue. It's just like Ken being extremely lame um, and not being able to shred. Very unfortunate. Now, we heard reports We heard reports from our informants that Ken also showed up in knee pads, elbow pads, and a full uh, dirt bike helmet. Is that true? That's correct. And, and the only thing I'd add there, Jordan, uh, is that he was also wearing a cup and, and jockstrap. Uh, <laughs> in case you're doing one of those hard flips and you get caught up. That's actually smart. Yes, yes. That, that's yes. a scary situation in uh, one of those. Yeah, and I mean to be clear, when the when the kickflip in, uh, injury happened, right, that was a primo where, uh, and for those those following along at home, you know, he landed on the side of his board, and so I think that the cup was really a response to the fear of primoing and then falling directly onto his dick and balls yeah. onto the skateboard. So you know he. He, he buttoned up. We all know old Ken would have done a Rodney Mullen kind of thing, landing in primo, and he would have turned that into a whole, <laughs> you know, a whole new move. Yes. But now he's not capable of doing that anymore. Yes. That's too bad. Yes. Well, to 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 the listeners, DM him and, and tell him to get back on the on the board. What about Ryan Grimm? Can Ryan Grimm skate? Uh, Ryan Grimm cannot skate. Uh, me and Ken were talking about skating. He looked scared. He looked confused. Uh, he looked unsure. <laughs> Um, he was rapidly flipping through fish, uh, Woodstock 1999 clips on his phone, trying to ignore the discussion. <laughs> um, 
of, of uh, you know, Baker three. Uh, I could tell these words were confusing. They were upsetting. Um, so to, to, in short, no, Ryan Grimm does not shred. I forget that he's a, a jam band guy. I saw a clip, I think from Rising uh, recently that Ryan Grimm, I think his honeymoon was to Burning Man and my brain just <laughs> short circuited when I, I, when I, I can certainly follow up on that. I have not heard that. If that's true, that there will, we will definitely prioritize some coverage on that. Yeah. But wait, is that, wait, oh, that is kind of shocking. I don't, I have not heard that. Right. He said it, I guess, whatever. It's not rising. It's whatever show he's on now. But he was saying that he, he has at least attended Burning Man, but I'm pretty sure he said his honeymoon was to Burning Man. And I, I just left that clip with so many questions about young yeah. Ryan Grimm. That's great. We got to bring Greenwald in on that. Sick, <laughs> sick Greenwald on that one. He's got the hacked uh, home home video footage of, of young Grimm there. Dan, we're, we're happy to have you back. You have a new piece uh, out in The Intercept about the UAW strike entitled Confused Automakers Braced for Strike at the Wrong Plants. We'll get into that in a minute. But everyone's watching now as the UAW, the Auto Workers Union, is in contract negotiations with the big three. That's Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. Stellantis is the parent company of Chrysler. Now, there are some demands being made by the UAW. We'd like to get into what those are and hear from you about what they're demanding. And are we seeing a strike right now? Because it's it's not every plant is, is taking action. What's happening and what are they asking for? The list of demands are, you know, 40% pay, pay bumps uh, over four or five years. Um, you know, the restoration of a full suite of benefits, which have been chiseled away at uh, over decades, um, you know, the removal of a, of a tiered working system, which which penalizes uh, junior employees, new employees, creates divisions within the workforce where, you know, senior employees are earning more, they have more protections. Um, and that's obviously not only bad for workers across the board, but it, it also creates, you know, tensions and divisions in, in the way that you, you fight together. We talked a lot about this a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the UPS strikes. That was a central, a central uh part of those negotiations wanting to get rid of this tiered payment system that had been put in place, which has that exact same effect. Right. So that was, that was like central um, to the Teamster strike. Um, and in terms of, you know, their strategy, uh, yeah, this is sort of a revamped old strategy is, is kind of how it's being framed by, by the union and labor advocates. Um, but instead of a sort of mass uh, walk off where you know every plant goes on strike and it's hyper concentrated. It you know um, garners a lot of media attention, but ultimately ends up costing the union a lot of money because they're paying out. You know, in this you know UAW is like I think uh, I think it's like one hundred fifty thousand strong, right? Um, so it, you know instead of paying out you know st strike funds five hundred dollars a week to every one of those members. Um, they're doing really targeted actions uh, right now at three different manufacturing plants, condensing the number of plants, but kind of targeting um, critical facilities and threatening to expand that strike to other facilities, uh, I believe on Friday, um, 
as negotiations continue and, and their demands are not being met with good faith. So the idea is like, this is, this is strategic. This is not for show. This is not just to get on MSNBC for a week, give the union bosses a pat on the back and then fold, which is how a lot of unions have, have operated strikes in the past decade. Um, this is highly tactical, very strategic, well thought out, um, and is, while it's precedented from, from the 20th century, um, unions just have not been willing to <laughs> fight strategically and honestly, you know, in a way that really seeks to win their gains. In the past, it's largely been about leadership being able to say, okay, we, we had this big show of force and then ultimately you know, caving basically to the companies. I mentioned we talked about this um, a few weeks ago with our guest Alexander Edward uh, when we were covering the possibility of a UPS strike. And I think, you know, the, the kind of main takeaway from that lesson was how much of a benefit it was to uh, UPS workers, uh, the unionized workers there, having a leadership that took this really militant attitude towards uh, negotiating with the the bosses and didn't have this kind of conciliatory approach. Um, and you're, I think that was the main lesson to take away from that is that that's really what's going to deliver gains to workers. And uh, it's really kind of exciting and inspiring. There's so much stuff to be so depressed about lately or really, you know, since we've started doing this show, but it's, it's really exciting and inspiring to see that kind of class consciousness start to really take hold. And these big unions start to realize um, an electing leadership that's going to negotiate on their behalf like that. And um, I think that's the, that's the exciting thing about this moment. And, um, you know, I guess my, my main question is like whether, because it doesn't seem like these uh, these big three automakers are really in a big hurry to give in to the demands. There's kind of like this half-hearted effort to kind of, um, you know, offer up a few more crumbs basically, but nowhere close to like what the actual demands are. And it's really encouraging to see them kind of not fall for that. And uh, that seems to be the the main thing that I'm curious about is whether that is going to now expand. It seems like there's a lot of possibility for it to grow and expand. And I think that's the interesting thing about this particular strike and strategy that hasn't really been seen before, the way that it started out in this very targeted way. Um, but it, it really, if you look at what the the language that's coming from the bosses and from the, the, the CEOs of the big three, it doesn't seem like it's going to um, be you know stopping anytime soon. So I'm really curious to see whether it's going to expand uh, into something even bigger. And then you look at the polling. You know, you look at the public polling. And people are overwhelmingly you know 75 percent uh, on the side of workers. You know, and I think that it, I think it's interesting too that like I mean I think part of that is that this is these are auto manufacturing jobs. These are like what people think of when they think of union jobs. They think of like guys in flannel yeah. shirts on the on the assembly line, you know, making classic American cars. And so I think, you know, that goes a long way. Um, but I also just think that, yeah, you, you, I, I think it can be confusing because unlike the democratic party, right? Like unlike the old guard uh, in, in national politics where you have um, politicians who are toting the corporatist line in public, you know, and slandering progressive challengers, in organized labor, you know, even the kind of old guard, you know, in the Teamsters, for example, you know, 
Jimmy Hoffa's son, who, who ran the Teamsters for decades and was unseated by Sean O'Brien, who led the successful Teamsters strike. Like, even, you know, Hoffa's kid before he was ousted, like, they're still drawing on this old school radical language, right? Like, they're still drawing on union history. They're still talking the talk, even if they're caving to management, even if they're just trying to preserve, you know, their own, um, you know, seats atop uh, union management. Um, and it's not to say that it's exactly parallel. I mean, I think uh, Sean Fain, the UAW president, put out a, a, an awesome statement today, uh, you know, <laughs> with some uh, fire and brimstone Bible quotes, yeah. you know, tearing into corporate CEOs. But so I, I think in a certain sense, it's like sometimes people outside who are not following this stuff closely, it's like they don't quite register the shift in how dramatic um, these leadership shakeups are. But, you know, the bottom line is like someone like Sean Fain is a true believer in the same way that like Bernie Sanders is a true believer. And that means that they are just willing to take these risks. They're willing to fight uh, ideological fights. Um, and I think that it's just the single most important thing. And I think it's uh, it's something that gets left behind a lot. It's like the UAW is a huge union. They have a huge number of employees. As I said before, they're extremely popular. <laughs> People like auto workers. Um, but this, this single most important thing, unfortunately, as much as we all like shouting solidarity forever over and over again, is who's at the, at the helm. And so I think going forward, even past this, you know, we, we're seeing how powerful it is. We're seeing them, you know, Sean Fain is, has said, we are not going to endorse Joe Biden until he throws down making sure that the electrical vehicle transition does not create low paying jobs, that it preserves high paying, high benefits, uh, pensioned auto manufacturing jobs. Um, and, you know, that's that's an incredible thing. And, and it's critical because the UAW runs Michigan. I mean, there's there's they they are the powerhouse of Michigan state politics. And so, you know, having them before uh, uh, election, which is going to be a close election in a critical swing state, basically tell Joe Biden to go fuck himself and to tell his representatives that they don't want to see their faces, you know, in Detroit um, is a wild thing. And, and I think that going forward, the single most important job of the media is to focus in on these leadership elections, to balance coverage of the day-to-day -day strike actions, which I think the left press is good at, with hard investigative reporting and hard uh, preemptive, you know, forward-looking reporting on, okay, what are the next leadership fights? You know, is someone going to challenge uh, AFT leadership? Is there going to be a dust-up um, at AFL, or is that a sealed deal for decades to come? Um, you know, I think the, the tactical stuff is important. The solidarity stuff is important. But if you really want to think about power, the most critical thing is taking the lesson of how much Sean Fain is, you know, directing this charge and how much that shakeup matters. Let's get into some of these tactics, right? He's taking a much tougher approach in negotiations. Typically, and this was uh, criticized by financial analysts and CNBC pundits, uh, he refused to do the handshake ceremony with the big three, which typically preceded contract negotiations between the UAW and the big three uh, automakers. And in addition to that, as they went into this, these proceedings, they started taking a different approach with how they uh, shut down or went on a limited strike. You have a piece about that. 
and it ended up confusing some of these companies. Could you break down what they did and how they tricked uh, some of these automakers? Yeah. So, I mean, to start off with what you were saying, like, I think, yeah, they, you know, he basically said, I'm not going to shake your hand. Uh, you know, the first kind of uh, offer that the the big three made, uh, UAW cut a video of John Fain throwing it in the garbage and telling him to piss off. Hell yeah. Um, and like, it's, you know, that is a change, right? Like that is that is a change from past leadership who say, you know, we're stand, standing up to the corporate giants, but it's like in the end, they're still like calling them after, you know, each negotiation and back channeling to figure it out. This was really like a fuck you. I hate your guts. Um, and that's awesome. And I think that like that's good politics. Like I think, you know, it, it reminds me of John Fetterman. Yeah. It's like people are like, oh, man, it's like toxic masculinity. It's like actually – the majority of Americans, that shit appeals yeah, it turns to. Turns out everyone fucking you hates know, their like, boss. Yeah, it's not that complicated. Yeah, everyone hates their boss. Everyone wants to call them. You know, everyone wants to say bullshit out loud. It's like that's actually not alienating. That's what normal people want to do and say. So you know, I think that rocks. But in terms of the tactics, you know, um, yeah, like they, like I said, they they are not doing an all out strike. They are not doing a, a singular show of force to make a weeks weeks worth of headlines. They're doing this staggered strike. And, um, you know, my piece basically was reporting on a lot of allegations and rumors that were floating around. But I mean, basically what it seems like is, is you know, the union just started putting out words, you know, putting out, putting out, you know, the memo that they were going to strike every plant or they're going to strike this plant or they're going to strike that plant. And it just caused complete bedlam, complete chaos, complete pandemonium. And, um, you know, someone someone at one of the trade pubs, the industry friendly trade pubs, basically put together a list of like nine plants uh, that they said they were informed were going to strike. Uh, CNBC started regurgitating it over and over and over again. And you know, I don't know if there was a direct line into the companies or whether they're stupid enough to just watch these analysts like the guys on the hill do with MSNBC. But one way or another, uh, word got passed down to plant managers that all sorts of plants that never ended up striking, we're going to strike. And this meant that they were shutting down, you know, the, the kilns where they dry, um, you know, the shells that they put onto, uh, onto the cars where they dry the paint. They were shipping engines like from the South into the Midwest, thinking that they were going to have walk-offs. They wouldn't be able to complete parts. Um, and, you know, I reached out for comment to these companies and they were like, well, we didn't shut anything down. You know, it just, this is just logistics. And it was, and the piece came out and it was like, uh, no, bullshit like you you got completely screwed and they're probably going to be successful doing it again on friday um when you know it looks likely that even more plants are going to go on strike because it doesn't look like they're reaching the end of negotiations um and someone had a good tweet that was like you know it's it's amazing that a looney tunes ass tactic of you know turning an arrow the wrong direction basically was enough to was enough (laughs) to you know screw over these companies that you know collectively i think made something like 250 billion dollars worth of profit you know the past year um so it's awesome and and again it's like this is not some crazy newfangled thing i mean a lot of people before my piece came out pointed out the fact that that you know this was a tactic used in detroit in the 1930s when these auto jobs became the gold standard jobs when they became the sort of, um, you know, solidified in the American imaginary as like the, you know, high paying, dirty, gnarly, but, but, but high end gigs. And, you know, in, in 36, 
they kind of did the same thing where there was a you know central uh, manufacturing facility and they wanted to target it. But th- these were in the, this was in the days when you know the cops and and the Pinkertons and the the strike breakers could just beat the living shit out of out of workers, and so they basically you know made it seem like they were going to target one. Uh, less central plant and they used the diversion and the, the massing of cops and strike breakers uh, at, at that secondary plant to target their, their, their primary goal. And, you know, they were successful in, in shutting it down. And that led to, you know, the, the unionization and, and the, uh, the increase in unionization and, and the benefits um, that, that made them what the, what, well, I, I wouldn't say what they are today, but what they were. And, um, so really, it's just about walking the walk. It's like they're not really – I want to give credit to the workers. I want to give credit to leadership. But at the end of the day, it's like they're just fucking doing the basic thing that unions are supposed to do. They're just not selling out their workers. They're being tactical. They're being strategic. And they're trying to do their best to win the most they can, cause the most damage. Um, and it's like – I think to a lot of people watching this for the first time, it's this shocking, crazy thing, but it's like, you know, they're not reinventing the wheel. They're just doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and it, but it goes to show how degraded our labor movement is that it comes off as, as revolutionary. Well, not even just not throwing their own union members under the bus, but what I think is really cool about the kind of language that we're hearing from Sean Fain and UAW leadership right now is tying together all working class people as part of this kind of class struggle and not just even talking about automakers and auto union workers, but saying like, this is about what kind of a society we want to live in and talking about the extreme wealth inequality and the way that to get around that and to reverse that is through this kind of like solidarity with one another with all with all working class people i mean that's really cool to hear you know and that's like i said we talk about so many depressing things uh that's that's really really exciting on that point like i think it's critical that unions that can effectively target the economy that can effectively target um high profile industries that they are saying that because again like uh, sometimes i think come off as i come off as a little bit of a cynical realist on this point but it's like without those industries that can actually make credible threats to the White House, to political parties, to large manufacturers, the ability for places like Starbucks, the ability for places like, you know, um, vet, vet techs, for example, right, is, is a big kind of novel movement to unionize. Like those groups do not have the same power that that longshoremen have, that auto manufacturers have, that truckers have. And so it's critical that those people are in solidarity with these other industries that just don't have the type of political or economic power that they have. And so I completely agree with you. I think it's critical that, um, you know, that there are these alliances, because if you want to live in a different world, if you want to transform the entire American workforce, you know, you've got to partner with these other groups that just don't have the same type of muscle. Yeah, I think about grocery store workers a lot as a group that has a, a ton of power and have a really important job. But are completely at the mercy by these extremely powerful uh, grocery barons and conglomerates that control this industry. Uh, To go to Rob's point, though, I mean, speaking in language that speaks to, sorry to be redundant, but is relatable for everybody. You mentioned it earlier in that statement from Sean Fine, Dan. One of the passages was living paycheck to paycheck, scraping to get by, that's hell. 
Choosing between medicine and rent is hell. Working seven, seven days a week for 12 hours a day for months on end is hell. Having your plant closed down and your family scattered across the country is hell. Being made to work during a pandemic and not knowing whether you might get sick and die or spread the disease to your family is hell. Enough is enough. It's time to decide what kind of world we want to live in, and it's time to decide what we are willing to do to get it. I mean, That's that is shit. something that everybody can relate to. When your language, and not and this isn't to say like you shouldn't speak to issues that affect your workforce and your company, like definitely, but this is broad messaging that everybody can understand and everybody can relate to. And when you're selling that as part of a broader economic message, coupled with studies and data that proves higher union density in communities or in states lead to better economic conditions for everybody. EPI did a study a couple years ago that found that on average, the 17 U.S. states with the highest union densities have state minimum wages that are on on average 19% higher than the national average and 40% higher than those in low union density states. And they have a higher median annual income of $6,000 than the national average on top of health uh, insurance benefits being better across the board and a broad range of things that are provably better in states with higher union density because other companies in competing sectors or across the board know, hey, whoa, we got to compete with that benefits package or that salary or else people aren't going to want to work here. They're going to want to work there. So it's it really is a rising tide lifting all boats. And when you have that to back you up and broad economic messaging like this, it's a win-win. And that's why you see such high approval rates of UAW right now. Sure. And, and it's also just the fact that you're, you're redistributing wealth uh, from national corporations into states and then into the statewide economy. I mean, there's more money being spent. There's more money in people's pockets. And that means that even for, you know, non-unionized uh, 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 clerks, stores, businesses, whatever, there's more, there's just more cash that's being distributed <laughs> and not in the hands of, uh, of, you know, the, the shareholders through stock buybacks and, and through the elite. Now, you know, talking about the elite, I think it's also important to just take one step back and look at like, wh- what did Sean Fain come out of? Like, this was not just, um, I-, I think people on the left are often very hesitant to mention, uh, union corruption because it is the thing that, you know, the GOP slams. It is the thing that, you know, the right uses to try to delegitimize unions, but, you know, the UAW is a prime example where it's like there was a decade of federal corruption investigations. You had you had union leadership buying million dollar lake houses, cigars, cocaine and hookers at casinos um, with the money of workers, with hardworking factory workers funds. Um, and, you know, I just think it's it's a it's not a problem with unions. It, it's not fundamental to unions. It's a problem with institutions. It's a problem with, um, you know, the way that institutions calcify. And, you know, obviously you see it in Congress, you see it in, in politics, um, but it, it's it's a serious problem. Like I said, it extends to other large unions. I mean, I think one thing that never gets written about, it's ultimately been abandoned by the left and right wing presses, you know, is is the complete and utter failure of public sector unions, you know, that just the, the total uh, burial of, of militancy in public sector unions. Um, 
and the fact that when you attack them, you know, I recently, uh, you know, attacked a public, the, the, one of the largest public sector unions for their failure for decades to adequately um, advocate on behalf of wildland firefighters, you know, they, they, they went nuts and parts of the left-wing press also came after me for it. So it's, I think it's really challenging. In the case of the UAW, those leaders basically made the case for reformers. They had a, a decade of, of leadership's names stamped across DOJ indictments. So it was like, you know, that, that was an easy case to make. But some of these other unions that have just slowly faded into obscurity while preserving the status quo of leadership, I think, are going to be harder to tackle. I really do appreciate the way they're resisting the urge to turn this into a partisan thing as well. Like you mentioned the, the statements about Joe Biden and and not just like having some kind of blanket endorsement for the Democratic Party. Um, and uh, I think also the way like we saw, you know, Donald Trump was kind of trying to capitalize on this. And um, they, they put out a statement about that, about how billionaires are not on the side of the working class and kind of made clear that they weren't just going to like – uh, give credit to any any if Donald Trump goes and try and leeches off the the energy that they have uh, that they're building uh, that they're going to resist that as well. It's also been very interesting seeing these kind of like weaselly right wing populists try to try to come up with a line about this where they can kind of pretend to be on the side of the workers despite opposing unions and not not supporting unions and not really supporting the strike. You have folks like Josh Howley saying things like I support auto workers getting a raise and everything like that, but not really getting into the idea of, the, of what the union is asking for and whether they should get like exactly what they're asking for. And also trying to pivot towards the whole EV thing, suggesting that it's because of Biden's woke green agenda is the reason that um, working conditions are going down. And, um, you know, it's interesting trying to see how these right-wing populists who really try to position themselves as like with these, you know, on the side of working class people, um, again, I keep talking about this, but we, we see that we're seeing this a lot in Canada right now with Pierre Polyev, who's talking about work, the working class and how much he respects these hardworking people who have had life just getting harder and harder and getting harder to get by and harder to have a home and harder to get groceries. Meanwhile, his whole economic agenda, when you actually like get him to admit what it is, is just giving tax cuts to the bosses of working class people and austerity and cutting social programs and, and deregulating. That's the same bog standard uh, right wing economics that they've been trotting out now for, for decades. And it's, it's good to see unions and working class uh, movements just rejecting this idea that these people are on the same side. Absolutely. But whether it's Howley or J.D. Vance, I think it's a tremendous indictment of the reigning uh, administration's failure yeah. uh, to capitalize. I mean, the fact that and, – and honestly, I think it was somewhat of a mistake for Fain to put out a statement condemning Trump's um, – uh, speech to UAW workers. I think he should have put out a statement saying, you know, calling out Joe Biden by name and saying, why the fuck aren't you walking the picket line That's a good point. with yeah. our workers? I mean, it, you know, the, the fact that these right wing politicians even think that there's room to maneuver here goes to show that the left has has provided that room. The left has created that vacuum where there's space for them to come in and say that because Biden's not on the picket line. Um, he put Gene Sperling in charge of these negotiations, uh, someone who actively worked against unions uh, during the Obama, Obama administration and during his time um, post-Obama administration in the private sector. Uh, I, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, th this shit is on the table, but 
unfortunately, the, the people whispering in Biden's ear, you know, his chief chief of staff, uh, who, who I wrote an article about recently, had to recuse from, uh, you know, uh, efforts for the United States to fund international production of electric vehicle batteries because he's so wealthy um, that his brother-in-laws, you know, basically run all lithium and cobalt mining and EV battery production. So it's like he is, he is, he likes to say he's the most pro-union president, but every single one of his advisors is is grabbing as much uh, cred for their anti-worker corporate future post-administration as possible. Um, and it, it's it's just idiotic. I mean, it's it's a layup. It's people like, like this strike. People like this uh, union and they like these workers. And um, it's it's not risky. It's not uh, it's not a it, it's not sending a directive to the Fed. It is not it is not sending a, 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 a directive to Congress. It is just doing what should be the, the baseline for a, a Democratic president in, in 2023. And, and they're eating shit on it. Sorry, one other thing I just wanted to add there is, is on the EV thing. You know, I also I did an article a couple of weeks ago, too, about how, you know, by the grace of God, Biden passes these massive infrastructure packages, right? And they're not the size he wants, but he gets Manchin on board and he gets them through. And a lot of them are focused on green energy transition, specifically battery manufacturing, which is obviously going to affect UAW members. And instead of building these plants out in fucking swing states or in purple states, they're just they're – just, spread out willy-nilly across the south in random places. There's no targeting of deindustrialized areas. They're building them. There's seemingly no logic for how these places were chosen. So it's just he, his Biden is senile. He's out of it. And that unfortunately means that the people making the critical decisions that have massive economic and political impacts are a bunch of corporatist stooges who, you know, wouldn't know a good political decision if it bit them in the ass, even though they're being handed it on a silver platter. Um, so as much as people talk about the GOP being out of control and about, uh, you know, America losing its mind, they actually, the Biden administration actually has a tremendous amount of power and they're squandering it. Yeah, I think it's a re- that's a really good point. I and mean, we talk a lot about how Biden positions himself as being this union champion, despite his actions not always actually backing that up. And uh, yeah, that's the the reality is that like that's been a whole that's been a central economic goal of the entire neoliberal era era is destroying the union movement. Um, and Joe Biden has enthusiastically participated in that kind of that style of economics and bringing the Dem- Democratic Party into that kind of like Clintonite uh, third way politics, which contributed to that and that whole deindustrialization process that a lot of these working class communities have been absolutely have devastated a lot of these working class communities. So yeah, I think like you're pointing out, it would be, it would be very, very easy for easy for Biden to just show up on the picket line with a bullhorn and he would look great. It would be a total win. It's extremely popular. Um, but yeah, when you, when you're surrounded by these, these dipshits, like you're talking about, all of a sudden that becomes, you have to factor in all this political calculation, which ends up just harming you and allowing space for the Josh Howleys and the Donald Trumps of the world to kind of cynically slither in there and, and, and soak up some of that energy. And that's just inexcusable. Yeah. And people smell the bullshit. It's like, oh, you're going to put out a statement saying you're the most pro-union president, that you support the UAW, but you're not going to go walk on the picket line because it's unprecedented. It's like people can smell the fucking 
vultures around you. And it's the same fucking shit with like these these shitty union bosses who send me fucking press releases. And it's like you read through the press release and your eyes glaze over and they're like, we, you know, we have decades of history of strong union fights. And you're like, you're full of shit. And then you read Sean Fain's statement and you get that feeling of like, oh my God, wow, maybe the entire world is not completely <laughs> fucked. And like people, you know, my one of my editors says this all the time about kind of more creative writing, where she's like, you know, people can can feel the bullshit you're writing. Like if you try to bullshit a reader, a smart reader, they're gonna know. And it goes to say, it, it's it's the same with with politics. You know, it's like Trump might be lying out of his ass, but nobody doubts that that's the guy who he is. That he is, that's who he is twenty four seven. He's a motherfucker. He doesn't take shit from from nobody, and they can tell. Um, and, and they're willing to put aside the fact that he's lying about his policies because they they trust his consistency. And, you know, Biden is just obviously not not that way. And and when he is consistent, he's mumbling so fucking hard that people can't even tell. So Trump announced that he's going to hold a rally in Detroit competing with the GOP debate. So. He's not going to go to the second debate next week. He sees a window of opportunity. There's, you know, you're, you're talking about this vacuum that Democrats have created. That is very real. In 2018, I did, uh, I was like subcontracted to do a video project where I went uh, to Northeast Ohio, to Pittsburgh, and to rural North Carolina to talk to workers. Uh, for some policy conference. And when I went to North Carolina, I went to an IBEW hall and was talking to workers there and the local president. And I asked him, like, you know, what are, what are your workers feeling? What are they thinking politically? What are they concerned about? And in this, you know, in, in the course of this conversation, he brought up how in the primary, most of them, were for Bernie. And then in the general, many of them didn't feel comfortable voting for Hillary because of her previous support of the TPP and her long history of support for policies like NAFTA, which just decimated unions. And he said, unfortunately, many of them went for Trump, even though he thought Trump was very clearly a demagogue and just completely hollow. A lot of them voted for Trump because they thought he might be a little bit better on on the issues than Hillary. And again, this is in 2018. Definitely now we can see that was not true. Uh, but it speaks to just the casual observer, casual voter, their inclinations. And when you don't have something clear cut, like Biden is out there, Biden very clearly is demonstrating with workers or showing support for unions, like a clear direct connection between that political figure and this action, it's very easy for people like Trump to make inroads. Trump's not going to go to the picket line, but doing a rally in Detroit as this is happening is more tangible than, oh, well, clearly Biden is the guy because there's a bunch of tax rebates and tax cuts and the infrastructure bill that will help flow down to workers if there's a unionized workforce workforce making electric vehicles. That is way too fucking abstract to sell as a victory to voters. You have to have something very easily digestible. That's why so many people 
are expecting him and wanting him to go out there. There's a quote in your piece from Debbie Dingell, who allegedly screamed at one of Biden's closest advisors, Steve Ricchetti. Are you out of your fucking minds after Biden said pre-strike that he didn't think that they would actually strike? Could you talk about this dynamic between Michigan legislators and the Biden administration? Joe Biden's advisors remind me of like this Georgetown kid I saw get swung at on 18th Street one time. And like he was so used to everyone fucking kissing his ass his whole life at the country club that when he got hit, he wasn't just shocked, you know, from stunned from the physical violence, but he you could see on his face he could not believe that someone had laid a finger on him. It was like his entire world view of himself and society had been pierced. And that's the same with these assholes. They're from this Clinton era where like nobody would step to the White House, where there was no power, where there was no civil society organizations that could make credible threats. Um, and I think that's what you see, you know, in that rep, you know, saying like, like, how delusional are you? And how deep in the Beltway bubble are you that like you fucking don't think they're they're good on their word to strike? Like, that is just like that is just sheer incompetence. Like that is just bad intel, you know? Um, so I think like, you know, and, and it's also just this feeling of like, you know, the, the, as I said before, the UAW being so wedded to Michigan politics, you know, they really are like the political apparatus in the state. Um, and so I think, you know, reps and, and state reps there are, are just like, you know, you're, you're fucking us. You're not just fucking yourself. You're, you're fucking all of us too. Um, you know, in contrast to that, uh, John Fetterman drove his fucking Ford truck out to the picket line. You know, it, it's like, it, there's no better contrast of political instinct, you know, than, than, you know, a giant, golem steel working looking guy driving his american truck to support american workers uh fighting for better wages and it's just it's just so easy it's just such a layup it's such a easy um popular uh political calculation but it it, it and i think it's hard for people to understand just how delusional these people are and just how i i, I was on this long flight and I'd never seen I'd never seen Moneyball before, which was a pretty shitty movie. But it it reminded me of like the scene where all the old scouts are like sitting around. They're like, we got this gut instinct, like we get this tingling in our balls. And it's like that's how Biden's advisors make decisions. It's it's vibes based. It is not. They're not crunching any numbers. They're just old assholes who call their friends in industry, and are like, you know, like. You know, there was a political report about how the CEO of GM, like Biden, goes way back with her. His chief of staff is talking to her all the time. Um, the guy he fucking put in charge of dealing with this strike has a lot of ties to her. And, and those are the people feeding the White House information. So I think, um, you know, that's another important thing to remember. And this goes back to the idea of like changing both political and union leadership, which is that like, a lot of times we convince ourselves that there are these massive structures that are unchangeable and that are baked into the system and, and are just so totalizing that they affect everything. But in reality, a lot of times it's just people, a small group of really powerful people. And if you, if, if you find some way to smash that tiny ring, you can actually 
have massive change. And I think there's a way in which that goes against a lot of the impulses of the left, which, you know, are, are aligned with an idea of cooperative, you know, cooperation and, and, and grassroots and uh, sort of distrib- even distribution of power. But unfortunately, uh, the way that, that things exist in this country, uh, there is that centralization. But at the same time, it means that it's so concentrated. If, if you find some way to launch a coup like the UAW did or like Bernie started to, um, there actually is a lot of potential for rapid uh, and, and immediate change. Dan, we thank you for this breakdown, this explanation, and we would encourage people to go check out your piece over at The Intercept. Uh, where can people follow follow you and find more of your work? Uh, you can check out my byline at theintercept.com. Follow me at drboguslaw on x.com. The everything app. Uh, or <laughs> check out uh, my upcoming skate edit with Ken Klippenstein on Intershredded, which will uh, hopefully be, be <laughs> cut and edited uh, in the weeks Good. to come. Sponsored by Spitfire. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Thanks, guys.